0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Recently, I took my life into my hands and I went up into the attic. And while I was in the attic, I was uh, looking for something that was up there and I came across a box that contained all of my old yearbooks. Now, Why did I keep all of my old yearbooks? I still don't know, really, honestly. Um, Maybe to show my kids, maybe I thought they would be interested or whatever. But I found all of my old yearbooks, and I couldn't resist. I brought the yearbooks down, and I started looking through them, and you know, I was looking at old pictures and and um, just different things, and some familiar pictures, and some people that I'm like, I have no recollection of that human being, but apparently they were in my class, and you know, things like that, and then old friends I'd forgotten of, and then um, friends I'm still in touch with, and and really one of the most entertaining parts of the whole experience was going to the very front and the very back where people had written in my yearbook and reading what the types of things were that we thought would be a good idea to write in each other's yearbook. And in fact, some of the friends, uh, one of them in particular that I'm still in touch with, I actually took a picture of and like, dude, this is what you wrote in my sophomore yearbook. Okay, like what were we thinking? And I don't even want to know what I wrote in your yearbook. Okay. And so, but some of them that I I came across were pretty hilarious. Like there was one person that just wrote this down. They're like, Roby, remember that time we all went to the mall and then we went and saw that movie? And then they wrote... Oh yeah, you weren't even there. Sorry. <laughs> like, so glad that that's like forever, like in print, can show my children. See, even back then I was a loser. Okay, like that's the way it was. I just didn't get invited places. Okay. Another person actually wrote, um, Roby, I still know it was you who stole my money in chemistry class. Okay. <laughs> Sincerely, Stacy, okay, I'm like, actually, to this day, I want you to know I did not steal the money in chemistry. I still stand by that. It's kind of, it was funny reading through there. There was, of course, some fun things and some nice things. There were some pretty ridiculous things. But it just took me back to a place in middle school and high school. It took me back to that place where no one taught me, no one taught us that friends were a good idea. Like, there's never, like, a talk, there's a lot of talks that our parents had with us and teachers had with us and guidance counselors had and principals had and we had. Like, there's a lot of talks that we have to sit down and have with students. Like, there's a lot of things that we have to say, and some of them are like, hey, this is a good thing you should do. This is not a good thing that that you should not do. Friends and the need to have friends, that is not one of those things that we were ever taught. That is something that's just a reflex when you're in middle school and high school, especially late elementary elementary school as a child, you're like, I want friends, I need friends, and the absence of friendships, I know something's wrong. And like, it's not to say, like, some of you are in here, and you're actually in middle school and high school, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, because there's a lot of drama in my, my friendships. It is not easy. And we know, because we all had drama in our friendships, too, and by the way, still have drama in our friendships, even as adults, But see, there's something I think that changed back in the days where no one told us. No one taught us that friendships are not just a good idea, like they're needed. Like something then changed at some point where friendships kind of get downgraded to, it's kind of a nice luxury. Like if I have time, if I have like nothing else going on, if there's space in my life, I will give that space to really rich, life-giving friendships. And I think, like, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some are just very practical. You end up in a stage of life where you're working on your career, you're building your career, and it's not like you're just going to school from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. and a little bit of homework. I mean, you're working long hours, and then you have a family, and then you're trying to, you know, when you have little kids, like, you're constantly present with little kids, like, everywhere they walk, they can't bump into something. And then when they're big kids, you're the taxi Uber driver, getting them all over the place, okay? And then when they're out of the home, you're just wondering what they're doing and who's driving them places, and you're worried, okay? It's like, all of a sudden, like, kids become like a a big part of your life and there's more uh, and more responsibilities. Like there's a real practical side where it's like, you know, you feel like it's just harder and friends are just, friendships just no longer as much of a priority. And we usually just use that excuse and leave it. But if we can like have an honest moment, a large part of it for many, maybe most, probably all, is that since that time, you know, when friendships were just kind of a reflex, like, of course, to now, like, a lot's happened. And it's not just the practicalities. I mean, there's hurts. There's wounds. There's griefs. And there's a lot to process through. There's a lot to protect ourselves from. And it's hard to bring that back around into not only a priority, but something that's truly life-giving in our lives. But you know, the Bible says a lot about friendship. It's so important that, in fact, when it talks about especially our relationships like with each other as Christians at the church, it does talk about friendships, but one of the words it uses even more often is brothers and sisters. Like that's the level of closeness it talks. And so we're gonna go into a passage that I think is gonna be so healing, refreshing, life-giving, and instructive, and my hope and prayer for us through this series on friendship is that God not only does a special work in each one of our lives, but even together as a church, taking us deeper into relationships with each other. I want you to see what uh, the passage in 1 John chapter 4 Says. We're going to be working through this passage for the next few weeks. Open with me to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. This is a, a letter written by John, the famous disciple John, who is very close to Jesus. John wrote a gospel. He wrote a story of Jesus' ministry, the book of John. He wrote the three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, also wrote the book of Revelation. This is what 1 John says, 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, pause with me there just for a second. We're going to continue on in just a moment, but let's just uh, get our bearings. He says some very interesting things here. The first thing he says, and this opening phrase is basically like the summary of everything we're going to read in this text. He says, Beloved, let us love. And he's encouraging us to love one another. That's not a surprising thing. We would expect to hear that and read that in the Bible. Hey, you should love each other. Like, okay, that's not a super big surprise. Good idea. But what's really rich about this text, and it's basically the summary of this whole section, is that before he tells us what to do, he tells us who we are. He says, You who are loved, it's the same word in the original Greek. He says, You who are loved, love. And he starts with our identity. And what you're going to see through this text, what we'll see together, is that this um, cycles through that idea of how important that order is that we start with the identity of who we are. We are those who are loved, we are beloved the fact how it starts with how important it is for us to know our identity before we could even begin to fully love other people this is what he talks about in this text and then he says this and it's interesting he says anyone who loves has been born of god and this is an important phrase for us to just pause on for a second because that word born of god when John is writing, whether it's the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or Revelation, when he talks about being born of God, that is John's, one of John's primary metaphors for being saved. He says anyone who is born of God, meaning has found salvation, meaning will get to heaven, will live to eternal life. He says anyone who loves has been born of God. Now time out for a second. We gotta like really just pause because this can be we got to really look at what is he not saying and what is he actually saying cuz it sounds like if you see if you look around and find someone who's loving well they must be saved and must be going to heaven so it's like who's saved how do i get to heaven well how i get to heaven is that i just be a very very loving person and that sounds pretty good in fact i bet if you talk to almost anyone in our culture and said hey what do you think about this idea like the people that go to heaven are the people who really love well. Most in our culture would say, yeah, that's a great idea. Like I, I think that's that would be true. That sounds like the way to get to heaven. That sounds like the way to be saved is you are a loving person. But that's actually not what John's saying. I want to be very clear what John's saying, but I also want to tell you we should be glad that that's not what John's saying and the next he says this later in the text as we will see but listen to what John says just a few verses later in the next chapter he says this this is what he says this is how you're born of God this is how you're saved here's what he says and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the what does it say whoever does not have the son of God does not have life John is super, super clear in all his writings. How do you get saved? If you have the Son of God, you're saved. If you do not have the Son of God, you are not saved. If you've What does that mean? If you've accepted Jesus Christ as the one who saves you, as your Savior, as your Lord, you're saved. If you do not take that step, you are not saved. He's not saying, if you are a loving person, you're saved. Now, here's why we should be glad that it's about the Son, not about how loving we are. Because if it's how, how loving we are, that is a tortured, terrifying way to live. Because how do you ever know if you've loved Enough. And any time you see and catch yourself doing something the least bit unloving, being selfish, being inconsiderate, being neglectful, being rude, being selfish, there should be a terrifying, urgent alarm going off that says, "Uh uh-oh, did you just show that you're not loving enough to get to heaven. See, if it's up to us about being loving enough, then that is a terrifying, fearful way to live. And we go to the end of our lives when we one day stand before God full of fear, saying, God, did I, I don't know what he's gonna say. Did I make it to heaven or not? Was I loving enough or not? It's not only a terrifying way to live, but actually the framework of if you're a loving person, you go to heaven is actually a self-consuming, illogical framework. Here's why. Because we have to find a standard to know whether we've loved enough. No one's going to be willing to say, well, God is the standard. Like, do I love like God does? Everyone probably has the good sense to say, well, I'm not perfect, I'm not God, and I'm not saying I'm God, but I think I've loved enough. Why? And what the reflex then for all of us to do is just to look around and say, look, I'm not like God, but I'm at least better than Bob, who I work with. I mean, I'm least about, I mean, you haven't met, you know, the family that I'm a part of. I mean, my, you know, it's my cousin, okay, it's my brother, it's, it, you know, it's my neighbor. You see how unloving he is. I mean, I, I'm at least more loving than that person that I'm in small group with. Like, I'm, I'm more loving than that person. And so in that attempt to try and prove to ourselves that we're loving, we actually end up elevating ourselves over other people, which is the essence of holier-than-thou self-righteousness which as we then elevate ourselves over people looking down on other people, that is the most, one of the most unloving things you could do. So in our attempt to prove to ourselves that we're loving enough to get to heaven, it leads us into an unloving framework of thought. Do you follow me? Not only is the idea of loving enough, being a loving person enough to get to heaven, a fearful, terrible way to live, it's a logically self-consuming way to live. And what John is celebrating is there's such a better plan of God, your salvation is not up to you, it's about having the Son of God which was given to you. And so here's what he's saying. So then what is he saying? Because it sounds like, uh, Pastor, it sounds like what you're saying is, As long as you have Jesus, you don't have to love. You can just be a jerk. But that's exactly what he is saying here. If you've been saved, you've been born of God. And if you've been born of God, and God is love, and you've been born of him, then of course you will be loving. And then he warns. If you find yourself as not a loving person, you probably, for your own sake, should stop and ask yourself some tough questions, because God is love, and anyone born of God is going to reflect that love to others. Do you follow me? What does he say? He says this amazing statement, God is love. Now, notice he doesn't say love is God. Love is not a concept that we worship. The being that we worship has. We should be so thankful and praise this forever. The being God that we worship, who is at the center of the universe, has as one of his core attributes, love. Now maybe you're like, look, I, I hear you, but my concept of God and the Christian's God and the God of the Bible I, see, I mean, he just seems like he's an exacting cold, like, you got to be holy and to do this, or, or you're going to get smited or something. Like, I just feel like I'm, you know, if I'm loving, if I, if I'm a, it feels like if I'm a loving person, God loves me. If I'm not a loving person, God doesn't love me. I just don't get this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling that God is a very loving person. So how does the Bible show me that God, one of his core attributes, is this incredible love that he just pours over us? Well, look, John continues on. Let's keep going. Let's pick it up in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, he's like, you want to know how God's loving to you? Here's how he's shown his love to you. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see him recycle that same theme? He says, here's who you are, you are so loved. And if you're so loved, that's the space from which we love other people. He says, here is how you have been loved. You wanna know how God shows love to you? And he gives one of the best Bible church words you can find in the entire New Testament. It's one of the most fun to say, propitiation. That is what he's provided. And really, like, you can't say that word like propitiation. I mean, you've got to like put some ump into it. Okay, let's let's do this together. Okay, let's say it together. Ready? Propitiation. Now, if you didn't spit on the person in front of you. Like, if that person's not going like this, okay, like, you didn't put enough oomph into it, all right, maybe try at home. Okay, propitiation is one of those really fun Bible words, and the essence of what propitiation means is it is a very spiritual word. It's a spiritual word where it says that God has taken your sin away. He has satisfied the punishment for sin, He has so deeply exhausted all the wrath that your sin and my sin deserves. That wrath is so thoroughly exhausted for sin, past, present, and future, that he has no more punishment left for you. All that's left is his favor. Powerful concept, right? He has so thoroughly paid for your sin. That's, that all that's left is his favor for you. How has God loved you? He sent his son, Jesus Christ. His loved son. I mean, think about your children. How much you love your children. That's the imagery God gives us. He gave us the son of God, Jesus sent him down from heaven. Jesus, God in the flesh, walked through this world to be rejected, humiliated, mocked, tortured, and crucified and killed. And by dying on the cross, he would be the sacrifice and the full punishment for our sin. And on the third day, he would rise again from the dead, having thoroughly exhausted the wrath of God for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And when he rose again from the dead, he defeated death itself, unlocking the possibility for you to walk into eternity with eternal life. And that is a gift from God that cannot be earned. Just accept it. Why would he do that? Why would he punish his own son and not you and I who deserve it? Because he loves you. Because he loves you that much. How is God so loving? Loves you because of the gospel. I was talking to another minister this week and he was talking about uh, a time where he was passing out Bibles on a mission field. And there was a person that walked by him and said, um, no, I, no, thank you. I don't need that Bible. I'm, um, I, I follow another religion. And he asked him uh, what re- religion it was and what the, the leader of that religion was. And, and he very gently, lovingly said, well, let me ask you, what the Bible says is that Jesus gave his life for you. What has the leader of the, your religion done for you? And the person thought and, and said, well, they laid out a path for us to live. And that's true of almost any religious leader, Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, they lay out a path for, for future people to walk in. He says, no, that's not what I asked you. To, I'm not asking you, like, what were the rules? What did, did that person personally accomplish for you? That's the separator with Jesus. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He accomplished something for you on your behalf that is a gift for you. He took away your sin. And I don't know if you noticed what it said. It's the core of our whole faith. It says in here, these verses we just read, it's not about how you love God. It's how God loves you. Religion is not about, here's the path, let's see how well you can love God. And some people even turn Christianity, and sometimes even in our hearts we know better, but we turn Christianity into this path where, okay, I'll try to love you better, God. And so today I loved you well, and now I feel like you love me. And I'm kind of swelled up because now I loved you well. I read my Bible. I did this nice thing. And so I showed my love for you well. Clearly you love me. And then the next day I don't do well, and I was selfish, and I'm mad at myself, mad at how I operated as a, as a parent or as an employee or as a spouse, and I'm, I'm angry, and so I'm like, oh, I didn't do well. I'm mad at myself. I wish I had done better. I, I fell again, and now I know you don't, I, I know you look less than me. I know you're disappointed. I know you're mad. And so we think we rise and fall on how well we love God. And that's not the gospel. It starts with you and I realizing who you are You're the beloved. Do you hear how intimate that term is? I mean, you ask Rebecca or I about our three kids, I'll bore you to tears with how enamored I am about my kids. Talk about my oldest and what God's doing in her life and just her her confidence, and my, my son, and how he's so full of fire, and my little three-year-old who's adorable. I'm going to try not to always view her as being three, but I'm not going to be able to help it. Like, I could bore you to tears with how much I love my children. A smile will instinctively break on my, out on my face, a sparkle in my eye, and it's the same with those of you who have kids, and those of you who have grandkids, you're even worse. I mean, heaven forbid you mention grand anything, and there's pictures out all of a sudden, like immediately, okay? And all the things that you will show. Why? Because we just, are, they are our beloved. Do you see, Christian, what this is saying about who you are? That's the smile that breaks out on the heavenly Father's face when he thinks of you. I can't help it. That's the twinkle in his eye when he thinks about you and your name and the things he just loves about you. But he doesn't see you like a parent who's flawed. We're flawed. He loves more perfectly than that. He doesn't see you like a grandparent who's flawed because we're all flawed. No, it's more perfectly than that. He knows you perfectly, intimately, everything about you. He's never missed a moment and he's never, he's never interpreted that moment wrongly. He's never swept anything under the rug or dismissed it. He perfectly knows every single thing about you and still says, you still can't grasp how much I love you. I love you more than you can fathom. And what this text is saying is, look, before we can fully love anyone else, we have to know how fully God loves us. Let me read a few more verses and then we'll pause, but I want you to hear the rest of the text and how many times the same idea is reemphasized through here. Let's pick it up in verse 12. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have, listen, confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Do you hear what he says? His love as it's working itself out makes it so one day when you're standing before God, you're not trembling in fear of, Did I love well enough God? He's like, No, because you know your love for God's love for you. And you confidently stand on that day saying, I know I am saved. I know I have eternal life. But it's not because of anything I've done, it's by the work of the Son that you gave to me out of your love. It's the work of the Son on my behalf. So your love for me has cast out all fear on that day. He says, look, hey, if you want to know about friendship, if you want to know about having loving, mutually loving relationships, the first place that you and I have to start is by understanding the fullness of God's love for us. To fully love someone else, we start by understanding the fullness of God's love for us. How does John describe it? He uses this, this phrase about being born, being reborn. Have you ever heard the phrase, a born again Christian? That comes from John's writings. In fact, it's in a famous conversation he has in John three, verse three. It's the famous chapter where you've got the John three sixteen. It's Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And John 3.3, 3, listen to Jesus' words Jesus, John, that John records. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being reborn is John's metaphor. Being reborn from God is the metaphor John gives for salvation. But listen to the inverse in John. This is what John says in John 14, again, he's quoting Jesus and, and his final words and teachings to his disciples. Here's what he says This is John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. If we're going to understand God's love, can we just look at those categories that John gives us about being born of God and the inverse? Because this is the difference the difference maker in understanding his love and being able to more fully love another it gives these two categories. There's child born of God and orphan. And think about some of the fundamental differences between these two. Think about it: an orphan who does not have any loving family structure around them. Think about an orphan for a second. They grow up with the framework of there is no one that will provide for me. An orphan provides for themselves. And because that starts in childhood where they are providing for themselves, that's the framework they operate. No one is going to provide anything for me. I have to look around and I've got to make it happen for myself. Because if I don't, there's no one coming around to provide it for me. So I've got to provide it for myself. So I've got to find, I've got to find food. If I don't find food, there's no food at the next, the next meal. And then when I do find food, I'm going to hoard that. I'm going to protect it. I can't let anybody else get it because I never know when I'm going to find food again. An orphan can't help but operate from a scarcity mindset. Like, uh, there's not enough food for everyone. I'm going to find what's mine. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm not going to let anyone else have it because no one's providing for me. I've got to do my best I can to provide for it. That's what an orphan does. They provide for themselves. What an orphan without any family structure around them, what they would do is they not only provide for themselves, they have to protect themselves. And so an orphan looks at every... Um, every part of their surroundings and they're like, okay, I have to just be a default paranoia of everyone around me because I don't know who's gonna hurt me and I, I feel weak and vulnerable and protecting myself but I can't afford to trust so I've gotta hold everyone at arm's length and, and everyone's guilty until proven innocent. Everyone's a potential risk until they've proven otherwise because that's how I, I have to operate out of survival because I have to provide and protect Themselves. That's just the the fundamental of what an orphan does. And in the end, because an orphan has to provide for themselves and protect themselves, they have a fundamental question about their self worth. Because no one finds me valuable enough to protect me or provide for me. But can we think for a second about the inverse? Can we think about a child? A child in a warm family structure, a warm loving family structure is provided for. They don't even think about is there gonna be food at the next meal. They just say, hey mom, what's for dinner? Or they open up a pantry full of food and say, there's nothing to eat. <laughs> a child takes for granted, of course I'm gonna be provided for Not wondering. Clearly, there will be provision. And and actually, what a loving parent does with that child is works against entitlement. And, And makes it so it's not everything they ever ask will be provided, but they give them a healthy understanding there will be basic provision for you, what's good for you. A child understands there's protection. You're dropping me off at school? You tell me this is a safe place? Okay. I have someone that's I, my framework of operation for the child. The framework of, oper, of operation through life is, okay, I'm not allowed to go into unsafe places. So if you're telling me the safe places, if I wind up here, I'm going to actually assume it's safe until you tell me otherwise. So I actually have a framework of trust. I'm going to start with um, innocent until proven guilty. And I have like kind an of open, an openness if, if I'm a child. If I'm an orphan, I, I have a guilty until proven innocent. Like uh, everything's a risk. And because for a child there's protection and provision, then a child then has a framework of self-value and worth, and they say, I am worthy of being protected and provided for. And see, here's how these frameworks are so healthy because for some of us, maybe in some ways for most of us or for all of us, there's a dimension of an orphan spirit in our hearts. And for some, it's not just a metaphor. There's something emotionally or physically that we've walked through that is a very real fracture of provision and protection. But church, Christian, beloved, this is what the Father is saying to you. Please let me be your father. Let me tell you you're not alone. Let the God of the universe provide for you. Let the one that speaks galaxies into existence, let the God of the universe protect you. Let the God of the universe tell you how worthy and and valuable you are. Let him speak over you what your self-worth is as the beloved. He loves you so much he gave his own son to die for you. He says, that's how much you matter to me. That's how valuable you are to me. And he says, please let me show you provision in your life. You don't. Everything you have, you don't have to provide for yourself. Let me provide in your life. Let me protect you in your life. Let me show you your self-worth. And when we understand the love, when we enter into the love of God, it gives us the capacity to more fully love others. Because if we know that God is gonna provide for us, if we know that God is gonna protect us, If we know God is the one who gives us our self-worth, that is a a game changer in our relationships. If you know God is gonna protect you, and he's a father, and he says, here, walk in this setting. You'll be safe. Then we can operate in relationships with an openness to be vulnerable. Rather than starting from a closed, I think you're a risk. I'm gonna assume you as as a person is a risk before I let you in. He's not saying walk recklessly and unwisely, but he is saying if you know that God will protect you and that he will guide you, he's not saying you'll never get hurt, but he is saying you can then operate not from like, hey, I keep everyone and all friends because of the hurt and the pain in my past. I'm gonna keep all friends at arm's distance. You are a risk. You are a threat until proven otherwise. He's saying, no, understand, I'm gonna protect you. Protection's not something for you to try and accomplish for yourself. Let me be the one that's walking around you, protecting you. And you say, well, if I'm gonna do that, I've gotta reconcile some things with God. And you know what? Probably every one of us have some things that we need to reconcile with God about how he has protected us. He's not saying it's not a faith step. But he's saying, walk with me and let me be the protector. And let me show you how I'm going to redeem every broken piece in your life. And that enables us to walk into relationships with a sense of risk and vulnerability. He says, let me be the one that's going to protect you. He says, let me be the one that's going to provide for you. And if we know God's going to provide, then we don't enter, if we have a father who's providing... We don't have a scarcity mindset. And so often what we do with friendships is when we find one, we hold on to it and no one else is allowed in. This is mine. I can't make space uh, in my small group because look, I finally found it. We finally got it it and it could go away. It might not be here tomorrow. No one else is allowed in. Or I find that one safe person and, look, you, I, I, I don't like that you have other friends. As you're my safe person. I hold on to them. And, with, and that ingrown perspective on that friendship actually then spoils the friendship itself. Or I, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to this friendship and, 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 and I don't let anyone else in because I have a scarcity mindset. But if I understand that God is the one protecting and providing, then I can have an openness with friendships. It's not the only friend I'll ever find. It's not the only small group I'll ever find. It's not the only time that my need for loneliness will be satisfied. No, God is my provider. He's my father. God is my protector. And if he's my provider and protector, then when actually there is a fractured relationship, I can take risk and actually take a step and try to mend the relationship, even though it might mean I get hurt again but I can actually try to reconcile that broken relationship. It all starts with knowing that I have been filled because I have a father who loves me and is a protector and a provider. I am not an orphan. I am a child of loving God. And I don't look for other people. I don't enter into relationships saying, "Oh, they're gonna find out who I am," and or oh, they're gonna they're gonna look down on me, and oh, I probably said something so dumb, and I look so bad, or I go to re- I, I don't know what they're gonna think if I go, or or I I went and I'm trying to prove something because I need to see in your face who I actually am, and so now I'm using the, I either recoil from relationships because of my low self-esteem, or then I use that relationship to bolster my self-esteem. That's what an orphan does to prove their worth. You're a child of almighty God, the most significant being in all the universe thinks you are so significant. He gave his son to save you and be with you for all of eternity. Is that good news, church? You and I only love, we only truly love because he first loved us. And the more fully we understand his love, the more fully we can love others. You've been born of God. You're a child. Jesus' son did not leave you an orphan. You're a child of God. That's how much he loves you. We're going to end our time a little bit differently today. We're going to end in just a time of prayerful reflection. And what we're going to do is, um, at both campuses, we're going to invite, uh, during, during the closing song, we're going to invite some leaders up front. And I want to invite you, if you want to be um, receive prayer, and maybe you're just simply saying, look, I, I just want to experience the love of God. Then while everyone else is singing, just come forward and receive prayer. And let someone else pray over you. That's all you're saying is, like, I just want to experience the love of my Father in a more full way. For some of you, it might be the first time. Maybe that's your step of faith to be born again. Saying, hey, I, I don't want to operate out of this religious framework of I gotta love enough to be saved. I just want to receive the love of God. I just want to, I just want to walk in the reality the Son was given for my salvation. So this is gonna be open for all different places in your spiritual journey, maybe just beginning, maybe very seasoned, but you're just like, I just want to experience the love of God in a greater way, then this will be, we'll be ready down front at both campuses to pray with you. Let's go to before the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we wanna experience your love in a greater way today. Some are gonna experience that this morning by coming forward as a step of faith to ask a brother or a sister to pray for them. Would you meet with them? For each of us, as we end this time singing and reflecting on your love, would you just a healing work, softening our hearts to understand your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you uh, stand with me? We're going to end with a time of singing. I'm going to uh, invite some leaders forward to the front. But um, for those of you who um, want to come forward, when we when we start singing, you can just come forward. We'll pray for you. Um, but for the rest of us, let's just sing and reflect on the love that God has for us. Let's sing together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org.